The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. President Trump was effectively AWOL during the, the first few hours of the Capitol siege. He was watching it all play out on television. He at first was giddy, was happy to see so many of his supporters storming the Capitol, trying to, quote unquote, stop the steal in his name. He he was proud. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 26th, 2021. If you found yourself on a deserted island this past week, you'd be one of the few who hadn't heard about some of the stunning revelations coming out of the new blockbuster book, by Carol Lenig and Phil Rucker. I alone can fix it, Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year. If you thought you knew how bad some things during that final year of the Trump presidency were, this book is surprising you and many people with what it tells us about the things that even those of us who watched the presidency closely did not know. I sat down with Carol a national investigative reporter at the Washington Post and author of Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service, and with Phil, the senior White House correspondent at the Washington Post and co-author with Carol of the book A Very Stable Genius, to talk about what they discovered in their book and their reporting on it. We discussed not only a few of the headline scoops, but also some lesser reported stories in their book, ranging from Trump's briefing before the U.S. strike that killed Iran's Qasem Soleimani, to Trump's attitude toward potential 2024 running mates, to what we've learned about the behavior of people around the president near the end of the administration, like Mark Milley, Bill Barr, Mark Meadows, even Mike Pompeo. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 26th, Trump's final year, with Carol Lenig and Phil Rucker. Carol and Phil, thanks for joining us on the podcast. There's so much to cover here from your reporting in your new book, I Alone Can Fix It. And we're not going to get to all of it. And I think most of our listeners have seen some of the breaking news that has come out from this. But but we're going to hit some of the things that are of the most interest to the intersection of national security, law, and policy here. But first, a, a big question about your approach to this book. This is something that covers the final year of the Trump presidency And really hits a lot of different issues from the pandemic response to the insurrection to interactions between senior advisors requires hundreds of interviews, lots of processing, lots of analyzing. And yet you pulled it together in just a few short months after the inauguration to have it ready for publication now. And I've got to ask you, How did you find that process compared to the slightly more forgiving process 
of your first book about the Trump presidency? David, I'm really glad you asked that question because we do feel like it was quite an achievement to write a book in four months. We are not patting ourselves on the back, but I I think it was pretty stunning to be able to do this. We had a huge advantage, Phil and I, however, which is that we had been covering in real time the Trump presidency in 2020, gathering string and noticing, of course, the sort of stunning patterns of the president himself, his character, his toolkit, um, which was woefully inadequate to deal with a real crisis and a series of them that hit in 2020. The process, uh, luckily, was, was made smoother by the fact that Phil and I had done this once before. We figured out each other's patterns and rhythms, and we developed a really good system. I think that the most time-consuming thing after we figured out the frame of this story was really the 140 plus interviews. We sat with some of the sort of front row witnesses to history for seven hours at a time at a sitting. We sat with people five or six times and with multiple follow-up phone calls. Mm -hmm. That was incredibly illuminating and jaw-dropping and took a huge amount of time. Yeah. Phil, let me turn to you to expand on that because some of the reporting in this book is stunning. As I tweeted a few days ago when I was going through it to prepare for this, time after time I found myself thinking, wow, things were even worse than we thought and we were pretty well tuned in on this. So I have to ask, um, a lot of this reporting is original to the book. Some of it was from interviews during the administration. Much of it was from interviews just after the administration. Why not report more of this at the time? Talk through the ethical choices that you and Carol had to go through to decide what what did you hold for the book and why? David, I'm glad you asked that because it's a really important question and gets to the heart of what we do as journalists. You know, I would say that the vast majority, I mean, 85, 90% of the material in this book was based on interviews that Carol and I conducted exclusively for the book. And those interviews were entirely done after President Trump left office. So while we were reporting on the presidency in real time for the Washington Post and sharing whatever we could verify and corroborate in that moment to the public through the newspaper, we were not holding anything back. I mean, we were certainly observing patterns and and thinking thoughts about how, you know, broader context and how we might connect things for a book later down the road. But all the book reporting that we did was really done after he left office. And what we found in doing that deeper excavation for the book is that we were able to talk to people at a very high level in the government who wouldn't talk to us as daily newspaper reporters in real time. They weren't Mm -hmm. people who talked to journalists regularly, or if they did, they were in much more contained environments. But since the president left office and since they left their offices, they felt much more liberated to sit down with us and for the benefit of history to recount what they experienced, to share uh, what meetings were like behind the scenes, to even show us their diaries or their calendar entries or contemporaneous notes that they took in some of those meetings to help us corroborate what we were hearing. And that's what enabled us to piece together this history. And so to your the heart of your question, we did not hold anything explosive back that we thought the public needed to know in real time for the simple reason that we didn't know it in real time. It, it took until after the presidency for us to find that out. 
And there are some some real stunning moments in here, and I'd like to turn to to a few of them, uh, roughly chronologically through the final year of the Trump administration, but not entirely. At one point, you note that Trump, and this reinforces a lot of reporting from you and others during the administration itself, that President Trump had a quite low tolerance for receiving traditional briefings. Uh, he rarely studied intel. He didn't seem to process information as most senior intelligence customers have. But you point out that one briefing was quite different, and he actually did seem focused and did catch the attention of those around him as it being quite different. And that was the Soleimani attack briefing. Talk through that a little bit and how the the attack on Qasem Soleimani played out and revealed something about how Trump was approaching that particular foreign policy decision. This is a really important moment because Trump is listening. Uh, he's listening to experts. Uh, he's listening to Mark Milley, his defense secretary, his national security advisor. He's paying really close attention at the idea that the Iranian leader is making a what appears to be a, a public threat on his life. Now, there's a reason, according to those who were in the room and according to those who studied this from not very far away, that the president was so fixated. It revolved around him. And it also revolved around his image as whether or not he was a tough guy or not. Remember that this moment gives Trump the opportunity to show that he's not going to put up with these kinds of threats, even if they are idle. And it is striking to those that were in the room as well, because they're getting through to Donald Trump in a way that they haven't been able to before. Now, later on, you turn to the events surrounding COVID-19. And a lot of this, again, had been reported at the time, but not a lot of these details in terms of just how much the president was personalizing things and seeing everything from the cases rising in the U.S. to the vaccine timeline solely in terms of its effect on him personally and on the re-election of him as well. And I'm wondering, in going through all of this, there's a whole lot of focus on the people around the president trying to push him to see the consequences of his actions or his inactions. And it sure seems like there was a whole lot of frustration that the president was hurting himself. That, to me, points to a, a larger issue that underlies a lot of the stories here, that you had people around the president who clearly knew that he was not acting in the best interest of the country, and they sought time and time again to get him to do so, but they had to make sacrifices along the way, knowing they wouldn't get to 100% of what they wanted. No advisor to a president ever does. But in some cases, it seemed like they were feeling they would have a good day if they got him to five or 10% of what they thought the ideal action was. In the sense of this, in, in the context of this, what's your overall impression of the advisors around the president on COVID-19 and where you think where you think they come out now in terms of would they make different choices earlier on in that pandemic to try to push even harder for the president to do things differently? You know, that's a really interesting point because the president, President Trump, 
had had this tendency to take actions and, and to say things that were self-destructive. And he would do them based on impulse to try to win an hourly or a daily news cycle. And yet, in the long term, his advisors would, would show that what he was doing was actually hurting himself. And COVID is a centerpiece for this, but it happened throughout the four years of the presidency on any number of issues. But specifically on COVID, the easiest thing that he could have done and the thing that would have helped him politically the most would have been to take charge of the pandemic from day one, to be aware of the science, to share truthful and accurate and up-to-date information with the American people, and to have the backs of the scientists, to basically let the Dr. Fauci's of the world lead this response, to give them the stage and to, to defend and promote the best medical advice that they were providing at the time. But instead, Trump, because of his ego, because of his you know, wanting to be the center of attention. He wanted to be leading the response. He wanted to be giving the quote unquote happy talk. Uh, he wanted to mislead the public and make people think that the virus wasn't as bad as it really was, all in hopes that it would help him politically. And in fact, that's what ended up hurting him politically. And there were some advisors around him who tried to steer him to a better, safer, you know, sounder course. And, and yet the president resisted that because he trusted his gut. And he trusted his impulse more than anything else. President Trump was notably not a a very self-reflective person in terms of looking back at his decisions, seeing what he could have done better, because in his mind, he always did the perfect thing. But in your your talks with him and and with those closest to him, was there any sense that on this issue where the the contrast was so stark that there were some second thoughts in his mind about maybe I just should have put on a mask at the beginning? and I would have been reelected. Stunningly, David, Donald Trump revealed no regrets to us, save for one, but no regrets about COVID and his handling. In fact, in, in our interview with him, he surprised us by saying that he felt he had handled the coronavirus exceedingly well, better than anybody could. And he, of course, accredited himself with delivering a vaccine that would protect millions of Americans. He's, mm-hmm. he's waffling a little bit on that now, but he absolutely is insistent that he did everything right and better than anyone else could. Now, he deserves credit, to be fair, for the pressure he brought to bear on the FDA, the NIH, and other health agencies as he pressed for that vaccine. Of course, his motivation was to have it before the election, right? He wanted to announce that we he had, he had delivered the miracle before right, the election right, right. and before people went to the polls. Now, he did express, others around him, forgive me, expressed a great deal of regret about the question you asked about masks. CDC Director Robert Redfield told AIDS that it was one of the biggest disappointments in his career, that he had not been able to break through and either convince Trump or convince his White House physician to force Trump to wear a mask. Redfield tried early on in the in this late spring and the early summer, pressuring Trump whenever he could in that gentle way. Keep in mind, Redfield really liked Trump, really admired him, thinks well of him even to this day, but he wanted him to wear a mask because he said two things again and again to Trump. It's going to be safe for you, and it's going to be a great model for the people. And at the end of his career in the Trump administration, Redfield confided to several of his contemporaries that 
he believed that decision by the president had cost thousands of lives. You mentioned that Trump expressed no regrets except for one, and that one's a doozy. Uh, Share with us what it is he says he should have done differently and why. It's a doozy indeed. Uh, When we sat down with Trump at Mar-a-Lago for an interview for the book, he said he had no regrets about COVID, but that he had one regret from his final year as president, which is that he had not unleashed American active duty military troops on American cities in Portland, in Seattle, in Minneapolis, in Washington, and other places during the Black Lives Matter protests. He thought that in retrospect, he should have sent troops into the streets to uh, gain control of the demonstrations and and to really take arms up against people who were protesting the racial injustice in our in our domestic law enforcement system. We were shocked to hear that. And we should think back to some of those moments. We report in the book that again and again, Trump was pressuring the Attorney General Bill Barr, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, the Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, and other advisors to fortify a military response to the Black Lives Matter protests, and they were restraining him and resisting him and saying, no, we can't do this. No, we can't. Uh, You can't invoke the Insurrection Act. This is not an insurrection. This was the subject of very heated discussions in the Oval Office over a course of several weeks, and Trump never did send the military in, but he told us he regretted not doing so and that he would have done so right away if he could have done it all over again. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a few characters here that really play a prominent role in the story. Uh, Yes, this book is about the final year of the Trump presidency, but it is just as much a story about Milley and Barr and Meadows and others. Many of these people honestly come off looking pretty well in this story, either because they or those around them are putting a very positive spin on all the things they were doing behind the scenes to prevent it from being even worse, or because they ultimately did make a decision that was the best decision for the national interest, whether it was Barr ultimately stepping down or Mike Pence performing his constitutional duty on January 6th. But I do wonder what you think about the idea that many of these people were enablers of the president, that many of these people were not pushing back and in doing the thing that a lot of people out there were advising them to do, which is to resign because what they were being asked to do, while perhaps not illegal, was certainly unethical. But they went along with those things and enabled themselves to go down that slippery slope. What do you say to people that that will argue that this book is in part an opportunity for people like Millie and Barr to have their reputations laundered so that they don't appear as dirty as they did for all they did in the Trump administration? I'm really glad you're asking that question too, David. And I, and I think it's important because we want to show our work. Phil and I are pretty hard-nosed and pretty skeptical reporters, let's let's put it that way. We mm-hmm. are on guard, and we're especially on guard for people who wanted to burnish their reputation or, you know, whitewash a few things that weren't so flattering that was important to us. And so wherever we could, and and this is true in almost every instance, we were corroborating people's accounts with other people in the room who didn't feel exactly the same way they did, or maybe didn't even like them, or would have had a reason to be more objective 
So for example, from our reporting, you know, Barr comes across as shockingly very unnerved and disturbed by what Trump was doing when he was trying to pull military forces into American cities like Portland, Seattle. He was fighting against that. Now, that is not based on any one person's word. That's based on a lot of reporting, a lot of contemporaneous notes, uh, looking at White House records. That is, you know, a very solid bit of reporting. It does not take away the other elements of Barr's history in this administration, completely misdirecting the American public and misleading them about the findings of the Mueller report. That's his first audition uh, in the Trump administration. It does not uh, wipe away other elements of Barr's work to try to get Trump reelected, hell or high water, and to help him politically, even when he was doing things that looked pretty dangerous and scary. Now, I want to say something that's about the larger point you make, and it's so important. The idea that people stood by. What we found over and over again, without, you know, of course, naming names of our more than 140 sources, but what Phil and I were really taken aback by was, here were these people. They wanted Trump in office. They wanted to help him execute his agenda. And they were in near panic at moments about the way he was behaving. By that, I mean, they felt he was unhinged and so willing to put the law, American lives, and the democracy in peril for, as Phil put it, the hourly or the weekly news cycle victory. That disturbed them. They thought there could be a Waco. They thought there, all of these issues. But some of them, we learned, didn't want to leave for fear that somebody worse would take their place. Mark Esper, for example, the defense secretary, he was literally holding on for dear life trying to keep this job, batting down news stories that he thought were partially true, but would tick Trump off, and then he'd be out on his ear. Mm -hmm. And and he was worried about those those loyalists, those yes-men, those sycophants that would take his place. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Phil, let me ask you to pick up on the exception to that rule that Carol just said, which is White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Chris Whipple, who has written the book on White House Chiefs of Staff, was highly critical of Mark Meadows, uh, even more than other chiefs of staff during the Trump administration, for not giving the president either the best advice or not appearing to restrain the president from his own worst impulses, which is one of the jobs of the White House chief of staff. And throughout the book, when, when Mark Meadows appears, it is almost always to be pressuring people who have resisted doing something that would either be against the president's own interests or against policy or both to go ahead and do it anyway. Why aren't you working harder for the president? Why aren't you on the team? You have to do what he says. One of the rare exceptions is when Trump had the phone call with uh, Raffensperger in Georgia, the Georgia Secretary of State, to try to get him to come up with 11,780 votes, I, I recall. And Meadows actually, in that case, said he tried to stop the president and couldn't do it. Much more often, Meadows was almost the ultimate enabler during this last year in office. Give us a sense of where you think Meadows comes out in all this and how he is different or similar in regard to others that you reported on in your first book, A Very Stable Genius. Yeah, you know, you hit the nail on the head there with Meadows by describing him as the ultimate enabler, because that's what our reporting shows that he was throughout the you know nearly year that he served as the White House Chief of Staff. He was a political quarterback, if it were, uh, for the president in his reelection campaign. And Meadows prioritized the president's political standing, but he also saw himself as somebody there to execute whatever the president wanted done. And, you know, he did not have experience in government beyond uh, being elected to the House and serving in the Congress. In fact, his his record as a congressman was decidedly undistinguished. He was the head of the Freedom Caucus, caused a lot of pain and, and turmoil for Speaker John Boehner and then for Speaker Paul Ryan. And Trump liked that Meadows was this kind of chaotic figure connected to his conservative MAGA base. But as the White House Chief of Staff, you know, other people who worked with Meadows saw him as uniquely dishonest and uh, uniquely unqualified for that job. He didn't take it seriously in the way, say, General John Kelly did when he was the White House Chief of Staff. Sure. We did find in our reporting, though, that in the final couple of weeks of the presidency, really beginning on January 6th with the insurrection, Meadows became slightly more of an adult figure in the room. He was one of the people on the afternoon of January 6th who was trying to convince the president to tell his supporters to stand down and, and to end their violent riot at the Capitol. And then in the 14 days between January 6th and January 20th, when Joe Biden was sworn in as president, Meadows would have a daily, a morning, uh, every morning, phone call check-in with General Milley at the Pentagon and mm -hmm. with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo at Foggy Bottom, and the three of them would compare notes and really try to make sure that there was nothing crazy or, or dangerous that the president was cooking up, and also make sure that they were still on track for a peaceful transfer of power. And so in those final weeks, Meadows started to assert himself more as an adult guardrail, but he was truly the ultimate enabler even after the election, when, when it was Meadows putting some of these kooky lawyers on the phone with Trump, letting Sidney Powell into the Oval Office to brief Trump on, on election fraud conspiracies and so forth, Meadows is held responsible for a lot of that. 
You mentioned Mike Pompeo there, and that's interesting because in the first couple of years of the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo was omnipresent. He was at the White House uh, almost every day, advising the president on issues beyond his ambit as CIA director and then as Secretary of State. And yet during this final year of the presidency, as reflected in your book, Pompeo plays a, a much more subdued role and does not appear to be at the center of the majority of these discussions, even though some of them clearly do impact not only his relationship with the president, but also the widely defined duties of the Secretary of State himself. Talk a little bit about Mike Pompeo and whether his vanishing act, which may be too strong, but perhaps his stepping back a a half step in the last year of the administration. Did that have more to do with his political calculations going forward or because of his views about what was happening during that final year? David, I don't think that we are qualified to get inside the head of, of Mike Pompeo. The best window we have into him is is a lot what you've just described, that he was far less present in that in those last months, although he was, as Phil described, disconcerted about the 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 failure of the president to concede the election. I would say that it would be dangerous to presume he was distancing himself from the president. Mike Pompeo has ambitions uh, loftier than Secretary of State. He's been toying with running for higher office, running for president. And the last thing he wants to do is suggest that he's not in lockstep with the standard bearer of the party. In fact, when we um, sought to fact check this information about him in this private meeting with some of the White House senior leaders, where he said, you know, it's just us now, the crazies have taken over. He denied that ever happening Mm -hmm. because he doesn't want distance between him and the president, uh, we presume. We think our reporting is lock solid on that. Two topical areas we have to address because you you cover them in such depth here. The first is the suite of legal challenges to the election results and the the attempts at all the lawsuits in the various states. You make the observation that as a businessman, Donald Trump had unrelentingly turned to the courts to deal with everyone from his own employees to competitors to contractors and often had great success, if nothing else, just by wearing people down, by continuing to sue them, even if the grounds were not solid. And for once, that really did not work, which was during the presidency, and specifically with the events after the election. Can you characterize what people told you about Trump's mindset, what he reflected in your conversation about whether he truly thought that This could be overcome in the courts just by pushing hard enough. And that's part of what motivated him to have such extreme rhetoric about stop the steal and about this being a fraud, because in a sense, that was ammunition to give judges uh, an excuse to try to do something that he wanted them to do. You know, it's an interesting moment here because Trump did try to use the playbook that worked so well for him in New York real estate law when it came to election law. And, and these are entirely different subjects, of course. Trump is no lawyer. He's not a legal scholar by any stretch. 
uh, but he is a master of public relations, and he thought that by filing all of these lawsuits, he would be able to effectively bully the courts and, and wage a public campaign to get judges to overturn the election. And he also thought about it from a transactional point of view. I mean, remember, he had installed three of the nine Supreme Court justices. And because of that, the court had shifted its orientation to be, you know, right-leaning. And he thought that the conservative jurists on the Supreme Court would throw him a bone, would, would intervene in one of these cases in a way that would invalidate Biden's victory and, and allow Trump to uh, win a second term. And he was banking on that. And he was incredibly frustrated when the Supreme Court decided not to hear those claims. And in fact, when Carol and I interviewed Trump two months after the fact down at Mar-a-Lago, he, he singled out Brett Kavanaugh with particular uh, anger. And so he thought this would be a transactional process where Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis could do their kind of roadshow and file these lawsuits and, and testify in these mock fake hearings in states like Arizona and Pennsylvania, and that, that somehow things would just fall into place for Trump the way they had in New York so many times. And, and he was wrong. It was a, a miscalculation. And it, it was pretty astonishing to see that so many federal judges, including judges that Trump himself had appointed, mm -hmm. saw no merit uh, in the cases that his campaign brought. You also described that in this period, the, the tensions that were growing between what I will call the more traditionally minded legal advisors and people like Rudy Giuliani. I'm wondering if you can talk briefly about how it was that Giuliani eventually became ascendant and he and people around him dominated the approach between election day and inauguration day. This is such a um, a frightening kind of roller coaster in some respects. If you're a lawyer watching this unfold, and if you care about the integrity of elections, also a big worry. But you know, when the election returns come in, it's Rudy Giuliani in the in the White House at a party, sitting downstairs at a almost like a card table with a laptop open, you know, his son by his side, looking like he's the decision desk at CNN. And he is very much calling out returns, calling out what he expects will be the ultimate victory of Donald Trump. But then some bad news starts to come in for some precincts and some states that look like they're going to be called for Biden. And that's when Giuliani pipes right up and says, just declare victory, declare victory now. Say we won Michigan, say we won Pennsylvania. Without evidence, just say you won. Yeah, just say you won. This is the grand plan. And I mentioned that moment because it's obviously important to Trump as the days go on. Bill Barr sits with Trump and tells him, Mr. President, we've looked into the evidence. This is in December 1. In late November, he begins a process with, with prosecutors in different field offices to run down these claims of, you know, voters who voted illegally, voters who were dead, who somehow ended up on the voting rolls. Uh, he looks into the claims of a truck driver in Pennsylvania who claims that a bunch of votes were added mysteriously. He looks into and checks out one about a flooded office where poll watchers were kept out and there's suspicion that a ton of Trump votes were never counted. And he basically tells the president, all, all of this is nonsense. 
excuse is a more fine word for it. This is bullshit. And Trump is not having that. And increasingly what he does is listen to people like Sidney Powell, who was a very respected appellate lawyer until she stood up before a, a national media news conference and said that the ghost of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela had somehow <laughs> intercepted voting machines and she had an affidavit from a witness who could prove that voting machines in America had worked exactly the way this these same software programs had worked in Venezuela and started counting votes for Biden instead of Trump. This was the cavalcade that Trump increasingly was listening to. And he was tuning out people like Bill Barr, who had, you know, actual professional investigators, FBI agents and prosecutors at his disposal to look into this and welcoming into his office, Sidney Powell, Mike Lindell, the, the pillow guy, and Rudy Giuliani. This was part of the most unsettling part of the Trump presidency for the lawyers, including Pat Cipollone, who kept telling everyone, I'm sorry, this just isn't the case. It isn't the case. And Rudy is wrong. But the president just leaned that way. That's what he wanted to hear. Right. Let's close out with a couple of things about January 6th and the, the events of that historic day. Phil, you first. In your discussion of January 6th, you tell the, the story of how it developed over time in a, in a compelling way, but you also introduce some, some new information about what some people were saying or doing during that period. And I'm wondering what stood out the most to you that you were able to report in the book in terms of something new that the American people had not heard before about the events of that day. You know, in our deeper reporting on January 6th for the book, we uncovered a lot of new details that we hadn't learned in real time as reporters for the Washington Post. And we'll start inside the Oval Office. We learned that President Trump was effectively AWOL during the, the first few hours of the Capitol siege. He was watching it all play out on television. He was transfixed by the coverage, by what he was seeing on television. He at first was giddy, was happy to see so many of his supporters storming the Capitol, waving his flags, wearing his MAGA caps, trying to, quote unquote, stop the steal in his name. He, he was proud and, and pleased to see it. You know, things became more violent and he, you know, slowly recognized that this was a problem and yet he didn't do anything to respond. He's the commander in chief and, and could have, and, and many argue should have, organized the military and federal law enforcement response to regain control of the Capitol. And yet he remained watching television. And it took a number of his advisors to plead with him multiple times before he was willing to uh, issue a call to his supporters to go home and, and to stop the riot. Mark Meadows had to ask Ivanka Trump, his daughter, to come down from her second floor office multiple times to try to plead with her father and reason with him, to try to get him to think rationally about the moment, about the dangers, and, and, and get him to issue the statement on video that he ultimately did several hours later. Meanwhile, we also learned that Vice President Pence, as he was being brought out of his ceremonial office on the second floor of the Capitol, the Secret Service wanted him to go into his motorcade, which was waiting 
in the basement of the Capitol because it would be secure. It's, it's a bulletproof vehicle, and they thought that was just the most secure place for him to be. And Pence refused to get into the vehicle, according to our reporting, because he thought he suspected that the Secret Service agents would drive him away from the Capitol. They would evacuate him from the building. And if he were to leave the Capitol, he wouldn't be able to finish his job, which was to certify the election. And so he refused to get in the car, and he was adamant about staying put in the Capitol until he was able to get back onto the floor of the Senate and and do his work in certifying the results of the election. Carol, I thought that vignette was fascinating in light of your work with Zero Fail, your book about the Secret Service, and the fact that the tension between protectees and the Secret Service played out here just as well, where the lead special agent in charge of Pence's detail asked Pence to leave, and Pence refused. He asked again, Pence refused. And eventually he said, we, we have to move you. But the vice president was able to prevent them from driving away. They moved simply to another location nearby that was deemed more secure. And whether it's that story or another one here, I'm wondering, you, you have perhaps a better perspective on this because of that intersection of the Secret Service reporting and the reporting of the events of this day than almost anyone. How close were we, in fact, because of a different choice by the vice president, a different choice by some of the Capitol Police, to an actual confrontation between Mike Pence and those who were chanting to hang him? What's so chilling is we were seconds away from Pence coming face to face with people who were chanting for his death, coming for his head. He crossed a hallway as he was rapidly evacuated from the Senate floor and really seconds after rioters crashed through a Western window and ultimately dozens began pouring in through that window and an open door that they opened for each other. They were charging up to that landing and almost less than a minute after Pence had crossed that threshold to get to his hideaway with his daughter, his wife, his brother, a congressman, his detail agents, and some of his staff. As they sat in that hideaway for not very many minutes, remember their windows of that office are looking out on the grounds, that's where the noose was hanging for Pence. You know, a faux noose that people had brought to signal how disappointed they were, just as Trump was, in Pence's decision to follow the Constitution and certify the election, the rightful results of the presidential election. I would say that this is one of the scariest moments because there are only two or three choices that could have happened other than what did. He could have been whisked out of that building, and that could have also led to something very violent because as he exited the Capitol, he would have been in a pretty easily identifiable vehicle as being one of a supreme high-level official. And there were tons of rioters all over the grounds. So leaving wasn't that safe either. But he could have been whisked away, and we would not have had the final certification of the vote that day, which he made happen. Remember, he is the person who becomes essentially the commander-in-chief later that evening. While the president is MIA, it's Pence who's talking to the Secretary of Defense, talking to the Senate leader, talking to the House Speaker. We are going back 
to the chamber and we are certifying the election. He wants it done and he's giving instructions about how to get the National Guard over lickety split. The other option is that he could have been killed. It it is not unfathomable to me. And there were many chances for that to happen. When he went up to the hill, he had professional agents with him and he had a counter assault team that uh, at least a limited counter assault team, but they weren't preparing for battle. They could have taken on and potentially shot people, but they couldn't have shot the thousands that were streaming into the building. And so the danger was palpable. Pence's stubbornness, you know, say what you will about Pence, the statue, the silent man who stands behind Trump and nods approvingly for four years, no matter how zany the idea is. Say what you will about him, but on that day, he was going to follow the Constitution despite all the risks. And at the White House, you know, as Phil and I learned later, one of Pence's aides is sort of scolding a senior White House official who oversees the Secret Service. It's Keith Kellogg, National Security Advisor at the time to Pence. He's speaking to Tony Ornato, who used to be Trump's detail leader, extremely loyal to President Trump, and now his White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Keith Kellogg turns to Tony Arnato and says, oh, no, you don't. You're not taking him to Joint Base Andrews, which Tony has said that's what he's going to do. No, you don't. He's going to finish his job. He needs to finish his work mm-hmm. and certify that election. I know you guys, Tony. You're going to fly him to Alaska. That, that's the kind of fear there was about wow. interrupting Pence's duty. Sure. Finally, uh, Phil, let's close out picking up on that, on the uh, Pence theme, but tying it back to your extended interview with the former president at Mar-a-Lago, he did not have kind words for for Mike Pence in that interview, telling you quite bluntly that he had said to the vice president, Mike, you can be Thomas Jefferson or you can be Mike Pence. And then later on saying just how disappointed he was in him before immediately turning back to talking about how great Trump himself was. It's one of many people that you ran by the president as perhaps potential running mates, uh, were he to run again, or just for impressions. Person after person, Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Anthony Fauci, virtually every name you seem to bring up, he was highly critical of, denouncing them as stupid, incompetent, or having no courage or no willingness to do what needed to be done. Was there anyone that stood out for you in that interview? anyone around Trump that you think he left the presidency with a greater impression of, with the sense that this is a person that would be good to have around me in the future as I go forward? You know, it's funny. Uh, Not a single person. Uh, Carol and I talked to President Trump for two hours and 45 minutes, and he didn't have a compliment for anyone other than, of course, himself. You know, Mike Pence was a very loyal vice president. His critics would say he was a sycophant at Trump's side for four years, and yet Trump had no respect for that, at least in, in the comments he made to us. He, he said Pence lacked courage by not doing the right thing on January 6th and was getting bad advice, and he said he would not, or, or at least indicated he would likely not select Pence as his vice president were he to run again in 2024. 
And, you know, I guess that's not surprising because we knew that January 6th was a permanent breach in that relationship. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, it was it was chilling to see how little regard Trump had for all the times that Pence effectively sacrificed his own character and his own reputation in order to defend Trump. And, and by the way, we, we asked him for his thoughts on people like Bill Barr and uh, Dr. Fauci, but Trump also brought up other people. He volunteered people to criticize. Right, he invoked right. uh, the late Senator John McCain uh, unprompted and said McCain was a nasty guy, a bad guy, last in his class at Annapolis, which is not entirely true, uh, and, and just went on a tirade about John McCain. He attacked Mitch McConnell. He attacked Paul Ryan. He attacked Mitt Romney. He attacked Ben Sass. We could go on and on with all the people he criticized, and yet the only person that he has a high regard for is himself. He saw no fault in what he did as president. He thinks his enemies, as he put it, were out to do him in. He got a, a bad treatment from the media in his own view, and uh, that's the way it is. Carol, Phil, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, David. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Don't forget to share the podcast and communicate to others about the podcast. If you find any of these episodes worth your time, they might be worth others as well. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. We had both Ian Enright and Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo Studios helping us with audio engineering this time, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.